If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Were Druids the wise, cloaked and nature-loving figures of ancient societies, or bloodthirsty priests with a taste for brutal sacrifice? Were they purely religious guides or practitioners of magic? And why did the Romans perceive them to be such a threat? Speaking to Emily Briffitt, Ronald Hutton answers your top questions on the mystical druids of ancient Europe. So we are going to start off with the first big question, which I think we definitely need to answer straight off the bat. Who were druids? The Druids were the magical and religious specialists of the Celtic-speaking peoples of ancient northwestern Europe, as they appear into history. What was the Druidic heyday? The Druidic heyday was just at the point at which the societies of Iron Age ancient northwestern Europe, including Britain, come into the historical record. In other words, when they're first recorded by the neighbouring, more urbanised and literate peoples, the Greeks and the Romans. And when we're talking about northwestern Europe, were there any particular countries or regions that were hotspots? We're pretty sure that there were Druids all over what's now France and the Netherlands and Britain and Ireland. There may have been in other countries that spoke a Celtic language like northern Spain, northern Italy and further eastern Europe, but we aren't sure of that. Can I just ask, what do we know about where the word Druid came from? We don't really have any certain idea of where the word druid came from. Some people think it comes from an ancient Celtic word for the oak tree. Some think that it comes from an ancient Celtic word for wisdom, and there's no way of choosing between them. What we can say is that wherever the word is found among ancient Celtic-speaking peoples, it means somebody who is powerful in communicating with the religious or spiritual worlds, uh, often just a magician. So obviously 
Druids are sort of shrouded with this mystery and intrigue, these magical and spiritual properties. But I think there's also probably some misconceptions about them. So would you mind telling us what are some of the most popular misconceptions people have about the Druids? It's very difficult to say what are misconceptions and what's the truth about the Druids. Because all our information upon them doesn't come from Druids. It comes from people who were around when they were around, but generally didn't like them, mostly the Greeks and Romans. Or it comes from people whose societies had once had Druids, but that was hundreds of years before. And so they were trying to remember what they were like, or perhaps reinventing what they were like. So none of the information is reliable. On the whole, views of Druids stretch between two extremes. One is that of wise, kindly, peace-loving, benevolent figures who put in long periods of training and actors, guides to often much less intelligent rulers. And the other extreme is of priests of a bloodthirsty, barbaric, and savage religion, steeped in gloom and gore and ignorance and tyranny. And some counts mix the two up. So speaking about our sources, what are some of the earliest references to Druids? The very earliest references to Druids are in Greek writings a few hundred years before the Christian era. But they're just that, they're just references. The first extended description we get of Druids is in the work of the great Roman general and politician Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar conquered the whole vast area that's now France, uh, Germany, west of the Rhine, and a whole chunk of the Netherlands. And he left a very detailed account of his wars in doing so, which includes a standalone section on the customs and beliefs of the native peoples of the area, with uh, a few paragraphs on the Druids. But here's the problem, that that standalone section sticks out like a sore thumb. It doesn't relate to Caesar's words all round. And some of the information that he provides isn't actually compatible with his own account of his wars. So it could actually be this section wasn't by Caesar at all. We know that Caesar's book got finished by somebody else after his death, and so it could be that this author or his editor had a look at the book and thought, hang on, this is all one thing after another. What we need is a break in which people are informed about these uh, uh, local tribes and what they believe, and how good the information was for the person who wrote that section if it wasn't Caesar. We don't know. Thank you. You've just answered a question, actually, by somebody on X, Agrobiodiverse. But I was wondering, could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about what this source or what these paragraphs at least attributed to Caesar tell us about Druids? They're the longest description we have of Druids by anybody in the ancient world when Druids were still around. And if it was by Caesar, the only one by somebody who'd actually have had contact with the peoples who had Druids and would have had contact with uh, the Druids in them. And what he tells us is basically the Druids are hot stuff. They are a powerful, learned, and 
in many ways quite impressive native priesthood in charge of all religious ceremonies, arbitrating between tribes, having their own supranational meeting place in the centre of what's now France, probably at Chartres, where the big medieval cathedral is, and needing 20 years of training to qualify. So what you have here is uh, a general priesthood for a huge region that acts together, wields immense authority, and is in many ways uh, really very impressive indeed. The trouble is that Caesar also said they committed human sacrifice. Not all the time, but uh, when they felt there was an emergency and they burned people alive in enormous wicker figures. And this is the origin of the image of the wicker man that has come down to modern folk horror. Caesar said they used condemned criminals for the victims, but if they didn't have a supply of those, they'd nab anybody who seemed vulnerable. And the interesting thing is, A, we don't know that this is Caesar or not. B, if it was Caesar, even people at the time regarded Caesar as a brilliant, slippery politician who tended to mould the truth to his needs. So even if it's by Caesar, we don't know what of it we can actually trust. We've got a few of our listeners who are particularly interested in the relationship between the Druids and the Romans. I was wondering if you could tell us more about that relationship. I think we have perhaps have this opinion passed down to us in popular media about the suppression of the Druids by the, the Romans. Is that accurate? The Romans certainly suppressed the Druids. Their relationship with the Druids was that of a conquering people facing an independent power base among the people whom they were conquering, which could easily be used against them. In other words, the Druids could be regarded as resistance leaders. The Romans never actually said that. What they said was the Druids had to go because they were practitioners of bloodthirsty and barbaric religion, with a particularly icky sideline in human sacrifice. And a lot of Romans said that. But this could simply be hostile propaganda to justify the Roman conquest of those areas and the Roman suppression of the Druids simply because the Druids represented a potentially dangerous focus for alternative authority and resistance. We know the Romans forbade them in what's now France and the Netherlands and bits of West Germany, and we're told the Romans wiped them out there. We presume the Romans did the same thing in Britain, but nothing actually tells us that for Britain itself. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One of our listeners on Facebook has actually asked us about the Roman conquest of what is now Anglesey. I was wondering, do we have much information on this tool? I think they've said about the fact that they were considered to be wiped out by Paul Linus in 60 AD. 
but it also seems there were later conquests as well. The only point at which Druids are ever mentioned in Britain in the Roman period is uh, a paragraph in one writer called Tacitus. And he's describing what happened when a Roman army crossed Britain in order to extinguish a native base for resistance to the Romans on the offshore island we now call Anglesey and the Welsh call Moon. Now, what Tacitus tells us is when the Roman army arrived on the mainland opposite the island, what we now call the Menai Strait, they were amazed to see among the native army drawn up to fight them, great druids shouting curses and black-robed women like furies carrying flaming torches. Now, these were clearly religious specialists who were trying to bring down the anger of the divine upon the invader. And the story goes from Tacitus that the Romans had never seen such a thing before, something which suggests that Druids weren't that common, or at least weren't that common in armies. And they were at first put off, uh, frightened, amazed, but then their heroic, clean-cut, square-jawed, properly bred Roman commander Suetonius Paulinus tells them to be scared and orders them forward. And at that point, the Roman Tommies get their grit together and cross the Menai Strait, defeat the enemy pretty easily, slaughter them, and cut down their sacred groves. And Tacitus winds up by saying that the groves proved that a, a, a vile religion was practiced in them with altars drenched with the blood of human victims. And this is the classic Roman accusation. So what's the problem with this? Well, first, that there's nothing else like it in any Roman literature. And the Romans are the only people to write literature about ancient Britain. Second, that we have no idea where Tacitus got his information. Sometimes he tells us, on this occasion he doesn't, and that's telling. So we can put it anywhere on an enormous, frustrating spectrum from it being an eyewitness account by somebody who spoke to Tacitus, maybe even his father-in-law, the great Roman governor of Britain, Julius Agricola, who certainly knew Britain well. But we can't prove that Agricola was actually on that campaign. Or, in the middle, it could be a tale from some drunken, demobbed squaddy whom Tacitus met in Rome. Or it could have been made up by Tacitus himself. There's... Uh, a run of narrative, and Tacitus liked to refresh his readers and interrupt narrative with dramatic speeches and sudden dazzling vignettes of action. For example, he's allegedly the writer who records the first Scotsman, whose name is known to history, a northern British chief called Calgarchus, who makes this terrific speech about uh, northern British liberty, which rings down in the ears of Scots people through the millennia. But a lot of people think that Tacitus invented Calgarchus and invented his speeches. So we just don't know whether to accord this stunning set of images the status of objectively real history or a pack of lies. It must be really difficult for you to actually get down to the real history and to 
find out. But I guess it also must be quite interesting dealing with this where there is that level of uncertainty as well. You can get a lot of real history out of the Romans, and you get it when all the evidence converges. In other words, when you have more than one Roman writer describing something, and you have the inscriptional evidence left by the people who took part in the events, and you have coins struck by the rulers of the time. You put this lot together and it's real history, even if we might argue over the detail. But there is absolutely nothing to corroborate Tacitus's portrait of Druids in Britain. And that's the sadder because it is the only one we've got. Do we see a similar reaction to the Druids by other overlords, shall we say? The Romans are the only people who actually conquer lands which have Druids in them. And so they and Greek writers who work for them are the only people to leave records. There's quite a large body of medieval Irish literature and this does mention Druids, and it's produced by people who, unlike the Greeks and the Romans, actually had a society in which the Druids existed. So they're their Druids. Trouble is, they're not their Druids in a sense, because all this writing is produced hundreds of years after the Druids disappeared, or rather after the Druids were forcibly repressed by the coming of Christianity. We have no idea how good the sources of information used by these later writers were. We know the Irish had druids because they appear in law codes written not long after the coming of Christianity. But all those law codes tell you is it's now a bad idea to be a druid. It doesn't really tell you much about what druids did apart from the fact they took oaths from people and they were some kind of religious specialist. So actually, the copious Irish data is not any more reliable than that of the Greek and Roman. Hugh Berkmeyer on Facebook has asked about the role in which Druids played in society. And he's particularly asked, were they purely priests or were they also political leaders, jurists, academics, that kind of thing as well? If we only knew more about Druids, we could answer questions about what they did. For example, Caesar said that Druids were not kings or tribal leaders in, in France. They were raised above those. But uh, a, a tribal king whom Caesar actually mentioned and with whom he worked went to Rome and met a contemporary of Caesar's called Cicero. And Cicero says, unfortunately, in just a couple of sentences, that he found this uh, charming foreigner really fascinating, and he was a Druid. But Caesar mentions him a lot and never mentions that he's a Druid. So we don't know what's going on. We don't know whom to believe. You know, was this chap a Druid in a sense that Caesar didn't mean? Or did Caesar just forget to mention it? Or was the information we have about Druids in Caesar's book not written by Caesar and therefore less reliable? It's really confusing. We're told by more than one Greek and Roman writer that Druids were part of a hierarchy of learned and highly regarded people who weren't warriors in the Celtic-speaking world. And they were the top. They were the religious leaders. And below them came the, the Wates, 
vates in writing, who were in charge of divination and sacrifice. And below them came the bards, who, as the name suggests still, were experts in poetry and music and kept tribal memories. And that's probably correct because these names all have equivalents in Celtic languages. And as I say, more than one writer seems to say they don't seem to be copying each other. Another question we actually have from Hugh Bergmeier is, could we perhaps compare them with the Magi of the Middle East or perhaps other perceived shamanistic traditions or practices? Comparing Druids is a fun game. It's also a dangerous one. Comparing them to other peoples and their religious specialists accentuates both those qualities. Really, they can be compared only in the sense that they were the top spiritual specialists of their peoples, and every ancient culture had top spiritual specialists. But the Druids don't look terribly like the others. They're they're kind of similar to Greek and Roman priests and that they do similar things. And it could just be they have a different name. They're quite unlike the Magi, who are, technically speaking, the priests of the Zoroastrian religion, the modern Parsi religion, which is very different from the religions of Europe. It's based on the idea of perpetual conflict between an all-good god symbolizing and symbolized by light and an evil entity, the uh, Zoroastrian equivalent of Satan, who fights for supremacy with the good guy, theologically. And there's nothing like that in European religion or mythology. There's possibly more mileage in comparing the Druids with the shamans of Eastern Europe and particularly Siberia, in that they're tribal specialists in the art of communicating with the divine and the supernatural. But there's a big difference. The reason why, when Europeans got to Siberia in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, they came across these tribal specialists and called them shamans, and took the name back to Europe, is that those tribal peoples in Siberia were doing things that religious and spiritual specialists weren't doing in Europe, which really impressed the travellers, although not always favourably. And that is, shamans in Siberia, by definition, contact the spirit world by going into a trance through a really dramatic and elaborate performance that usually involves chanting, dancing, and a musical instrument, usually a drum. Uh, And then they go into trance. And there's no record of anybody doing this in Europe outside particular peoples like the Sami, the Laps, who are directly related to the Siberians. So there is a shamanic province in Europe, but it's way outside the Druidic area, and absolutely nobody describes Druids doing this. So unfortunately, it all comes down to definitions. If to you a shaman is any tribal practitioner who connects with the divine to help that practitioner's people. Druids are shamans and shamans are druids. But if you're looking at their techniques, shamans and druids look wildly different. We have another question from Facebook, and that's what formed the basis of druidic belief? And 
Do we know if they were perhaps derived from any other cultural or religious customs we are aware of? There are certain things that Druids must have believed in, simply because all ancient Europeans did, like a large number of goddesses and gods, uh, often unique to particular areas, natural features, tribes. And the other is a world teeming with spirits in general with whom human beings need to get on if they're going to prosper. And they definitely had animal sacrifice because everybody in ancient Europe was. And it's basically uh, a means of getting protein. You can't afford in traditional societies to eat large numbers of animals because their supply is limited and you need to breed them again. So you tend to eat them rarely, especially if uh, you're an ordinary person and at certain times of the year. So what ancient Europeans would do is gather for festivals and they would dedicate to the deities the life of the animal they were about to slaughter to eat. So it's just a way of sanctifying meat eating. Uh, it's, it's actually something as mundane as that. And the Druids would have led it because the religious specialists of every ancient European people led it. It's a lot harder to say if there are things that Druids believe that ancient Europeans in general didn't. We have a one-liner in one ancient Greek and Roman text that the Druids believed that, no, not Druids believe, this is important, that uh, the peoples of what's now France believe that when you die, your soul leaves your body and then reincarnates in the body of uh, another living thing, uh, animal or human. And that could well be the case. Problem is that uh, a lot of the archaeological evidence and some of the testimony of other Greeks and Romans shows that these peoples believed very firmly in another world, an afterlife that wasn't reincarnation. Uh, for a start, uh, some writers said they believed in it so much that some people would throw letters onto a funeral pyre so they could be forwarded to the person in the next life. And the huge amount of, uh, of wealth you find in graves being delivered there for people does suggest they're not expected to reincarnate. You know. all, all of that bling must be of some use to somebody somewhere. This is something Agrobiodiverse was talking about on X, about beliefs surrounding death, burial and commemoration. Are there any particular we know about Druids or is it generally a societal thing? We don't know of any beliefs that Druids held that the rest of the people in their society didn't hold. If they had a secret teaching, that's the problem. It's secret. And they didn't write anything down. So we depend totally upon uh, other people's testimony later or from different countries for any information. It's entirely possible there was an esoteric teaching. If Caesar was right that it takes 20 years to become a Druid, they must have been teaching people quite a lot in those 20 years that other people didn't know. But if he's wrong, of course, the point explodes. And it could just be they took a very long time to learn how to arbitrate between tribes, perform sacrifices correctly, and straightforward processes like that. To continue on the point, is there anything that we know about practices or ceremonies? I think that's something, again, we often see put in popular media about particular 
rites and rituals and ceremonies. But presumably that's all but lost to us as well. We only have one alleged Druid ritual that's come down to us from the ancient world, and that's in uh, a thoroughly anti-Druid Roman writer called Pliny, who's uh, a natural historian. Uh, He collects a a huge amount of uh, information, some of it accurate, some of it wildly wrong, about the ancient world. And what he says is that uh, when the tribes of southern Gaul, that's France, find mistletoe growing on an oak, they get really excited. And you can see why, because anybody who knows their trees knows that mistletoe almost never does grow on an oak. It grows in other trees much better. And Pliny is not saying the tribes go wild about mistletoe itself whenever they find it. So when they find it growing on an oak, they cut it six days after the next new moon. Nothing connected with the season, certainly nothing connected with what we now call Christmas. And that it's gathered in a ritual in which white bulls are sacrificed and a priest, he actually doesn't say druid, but one guess that if it's from that area, it probably was a druid, would put on a white robe and go up the tree with a golden sickle and cut the mistletoe, and it would be caught before it hit the ground, and then it could make a a kind of magical healing elixir. But that's just one ritual. It's from the extreme end of the Druid range uh, on the Mediterranean. And as ever with these writers, we've no idea how accurate Pliny's information was. I'm curious about the point you said about 20 years of training. How did someone become a Druid? Do we know if it was a choice or whether it was something that was chosen for them? We haven't the faintest idea of how people became Druids. In the medieval Irish literature, you see Druids having apprentices. And I guess that it's kind of intuitive they must have done because anybody who has a professional role needs some kind of training and induction system. And so they must have had pupils. But we know nothing about that whatsoever. All we have is occasional uh, vignettes, portraits, uh, in much later medieval Irish literature of uh, Druids training people. But it could have been wild guesswork. Stabby Squirrel on Instagram has asked about whether Druids could have families or spouses or children. Do we have an insight into that at all? Nobody who wrote about Druids, and it's again worth bearing in mind we can't trust anybody who did write about Druids, but nobody who wrote about them suggested they were celibate. And indeed, most traditional clergies or religious and magical practitioners are not. The medieval and later Roman Catholic Church is very unusual in having a celibate clergy. Eastern religions, like uh, forms of Christianity, have celibate communities, i.e. monks and nuns, but there's no sign the Druids had any of those either. Do we know if female Druids existed at all? There certainly were female druids in the records, uh, the records being so unreliable that, uh, again, I can't say categorically this was true, but I'm far more sure of it than I am of a lot of the other things in the ancient and medieval evidence. And the answer is simply because all the word druid means 
uh, basis is somebody with a speciality in magic, religion, or other forms of spirituality, which is a pretty big spectrum. Whenever people like Caesar mention Druids, they always seem to be male. But later Roman writers, uh, long after uh, Druids are supposed to be wiped out, record female Druids in different parts of the empire, including where Druids used to hang out in Gaul, France. Uh, but they're, all, all they do is prophecy. They're women with the second sight. Uh, what they always do is predict somebody's going to be an emperor, and uh, this unlikely guy actually turns out to be emperor, which is why we know about them. And the medieval Irish literature is full of female Druids. Uh, there really isn't much of a distinction between the two. The trouble here is that Druid is a very loose and porous term, and it can actually cover a whole range of roles. And it could well be that in uh, ancient Gaul, for example, some of those roles which were more politically and militarily sensitive were reserved for men. It could be that women have other specialities like uh, prediction, prophecy, which uh, were less often given to the men. Now, I wanted to touch on a point from Jay Sykes Inez on Facebook. They've asked about Oum. Could you tell us about what it was and did the Druids use it? Oum is easy to define, if not easy for a, a Brit to say, spelt Ogham. And it's simply the earliest writing of the Irish. It's a uniquely Irish form of writing that's really good for inscriptions because it consists of an awful lot of stroke-like lines. So you can stick it up and down the edge of a standing stone and turn it into an inscribed memorial really easy. It doesn't last that long. It's a few hundred years. The real problem with Owen is that we're still not sure when it starts. There are two famous ancient systems of writing that appear together at much the same time, and that time is around the end of the Roman Empire, and they are the runes used by Norse people, later the Vikings, and the oem used by the Irish. And both of them may have been inspired by the neighbouring Romans who do use letters which we still use today, widely, for inscriptions. And so these other people got the ideas over the frontier from the Roman Empire. But the dating is nightmarishly difficult. Certainly, Oum is there by the 5th century, the, the 400s. It's possibly a bit earlier. Problem is, if it's a bit earlier, then it's definitely pagan, and so the Druids would have had it. But if it isn't earlier then it appears when Christianity comes in and could well have been inspired by Christianity itself. In other words, a definitively early Christian Irish writing. And we really can't get a grip on this so far. The dating is just too vague to provide anything. People get very worked up about it on both sides. And sensible people, as peacemaking, as the ancient Druids are supposed to have been at times, uh, really try and stay out of the fight. You mentioned about Christianity there, and this is a question we've had from Wade Botts on Facebook, and he's asked about, were any Druidic practices that we know of incorporated into the Christian church, or do we see a perhaps Druidic influence in Christianity at all? 
we see a lot of pagan influence in Christianity in festivals, uh, and Christians loved pagan stories, which is why the medieval Irish wrote so much about Druids, whether or not they really knew anything about them or not, and why the goddesses and gods of ancient Rome were great figures in European art and literature right down to the present. It's very difficult to say if there were any Druidic practices that went into Christianity specific to Druids. Really, there's just speculation. For example, we know that the people of early medieval Britain and uh, Ireland, the Celtic-speaking peoples there, had a form of haircut for their monks, a tonsure, which was quite different from the one we're familiar with, uh, used by the main Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic tonsure, as in Friar Tuck, uh, went and drove out officially the, the native one. And it could be the native one was copied from Druids. But actually, we have absolutely nobody who says the Druids specialised in that type of haircut, uh, who's writing anything like with uh, creditable information. So we may be looking at, uh, in some cases literally, vestiges of Druidic practice surviving in medieval Christianity, but we may actually not be looking at any. When did that Druidic influence start to fade away? How long did the Druids survive for? It's very difficult to tell how long the Druids survived because they, they seem to survive an unexpectedly long time after they're supposed to have been wiped out, by which I mean that the Romans come into areas with Druids and they forbid them over vast patches of Western Europe. And then you hear of people called Druids centuries later coexisting quite happily with Romans and the Roman Empire. So it could be they meant different things by Druids. At any rate, nobody mentions Druids in the area of the Roman Empire after the empire's packed up. You don't find them in the early Middle Ages. In Ireland, it's a bit different because you find Druids in Christian law codes for a couple of hundred years, well, one or two hundred years after the conversion to Christianity, usually being forbidden. Uh, and after that, they vanish. So in Ireland, you're, you're fairly safe to say that there's been an overlap between Christian and Druid lasting a couple of centuries, or at least a, a Christian society in which Druids survived, perhaps in the shadows for a few generations. But when you pass about the year 800, which is still pretty early in medieval Irish history, you don't hear any more of them either. Did Druidism see a comeback in the Celtic revival of the 18th and 19th centuries? Druids became hugely popular in 18th century Britain. The peoples of Western Europe in general had started to get excited about them again around about 1500 as national histories began to be developed and Druids stand at the very beginning of the histories of a lot of the nations of Northwestern Europe. The British found them particularly attractive because this enormous and powerful British superstate had just been formed when the English unite with Scotland and Wales and conquer Ireland. 
So you've now got a state covering the entire British Isles with practically no history in common because virtually all the traditional national heroes of the component peoples, whether they be King Arthur, Robert the Bruce, William Wallace, Finn McCool, had become heroes by killing other of the component peoples of the new British superstate. And what the Druids gave was an ancient and in many ways impressive looking priesthood, which everybody had in common. And so it's no wonder that by the time you reach the end of the 18th century, different bits of the British are acting out Druids. The Welsh do it spectacularly well. They put Druids right at the centre of their main national cultural institution, which develops at this time, around 1800, the Eisteddfod. And if you go to an Eisteddfod in Wales, you will see a ceremony at the beginning with white-robed Druids acting out a, a blessing and an opening of the proceedings. And also Londoners, notably a, a well-heeled London builder called Henry Hurl, founded a society of uh, Druids, which uh, is still around at the present day and existed to foster the performing arts in working men, uh, music, storytelling and poetry, uh, and look after its members. And societies like that burgeoned across the English-speaking world. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people calling themselves Druids in the 19th century British Empire. And since the 20th century began, spiritual druids have reappeared, people taking the name of druid and looking for uh, what is generally a nature-based spirituality, which taps into the beauty and the power of the land. In what shape have druids taken in these last few centuries? In the last few centuries, druids have taken pretty well every shape that it's possible to take, given the fact that the ancient sources and the medieval sources provide such contrasting images on them. It's still very common for people who don't like pagans or don't like uh, people with religions or don't like tribal peoples to keep the hostile Roman view of uh, savage, bloodthirsty and ignorant priests. And the classic druid is an old guy in a white beard and a robe about to cut somebody's throat or perhaps more recently a guy with a skinhead or a punk haircut about to cut somebody's throat. Otherwise, it's the benevolent images which predominate, the idea of druids as patriots, as great scientists and philosophers, as people with uh, a, uh, a window on the natural world. And it's this image which inspires the people who use the name druids for themselves these days. Can we say that this revival perhaps influenced our perception of what Druids are? It's difficult to say how much the modern Druid revival has had an impact on images of the Druids. The trouble being that hostile images of the Druids are still around. And also that uh, there's a chicken and egg problem in that it was benevolent images of Druids that inspired modern Druids. And so it's difficult to say whether modern Druids have much impact in inspiring people to think well of Druids, or that people were thinking well of Druids anyway, and that's why you get modern Druids. In that way, can we perhaps trace any of their influence today, perhaps from antiquity or even from this revival? 
There's no continuous stream of transmission that a historian can find between ancient and modern Druidry. What exists continuously are the images provided by ancient and medieval texts. But people are only reading those and taking them seriously at particular times, so it's not a case that everybody all the time remembers and knows about Druids. They undergo revivals. More broadly, you could say that the Druidic sense of midwinter is present in our modern Christmas, for example. But it's not specifically Druidic. It's the sense of a midwinter festival as a time of return of light, celebration of uh, the turn point of the most gloomy part of the year, and feasting, dancing, storytelling, the putting on of plays and the decoration of houses and holy places. But that's kind of universally European. So when we do this stuff, it certainly is Druidic in the ancient sense, but it's not specifically Druidic. Why do you think we are still fascinated by them today? The Druids are going to remain fascinating because, first, they have a name that nobody else has. If uh, the Romans had just used their common word for priest for the Druids, they wouldn't be anything like so charismatic. It's a great, unique name. And also because they impressed the heck out of the ancient Greeks and Romans, and sometimes impressed them very favourably, and sometimes impressed them very negatively. But those are extremely charismatic and colourful and striking and memorable images, whether they're good or bad. How do you think they've perhaps influenced popular culture? I'm not in a position, and nobody is in a position, to say if any modern image or idea about Druids is accurate or not, because we have so little accurate information. What we can talk about is possibility. In other words, we can license a whole range of interpretations, ideas and images as being entirely legitimate from the point of view of a historian or an archaeologist. But conversely, uh, we also have a job in saying that if somebody pronounces a statement about the ancient Druids with dogmatic certainty, we do have the duty to point out there isn't any dogmatic certainty. So if somebody says the Druids practiced human sacrifice, you have to say, well, possibly. Or the Druids were really wise, kind, generous, noble people. And the answer is possibly. But in a multi-ethnic, multi-faith, multicultural society based on individual choice, the amount of choice involved is not a bad place in which to be. That was Ronald Hutton, Professor of History at the University of Bristol and author of books including Blood and Mistletoe, The History of the Druids in Britain, reprinted by Yale University Press in 2022. You can listen to another recent episode with Ronald on the history of paganism at historyextra.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. Thank you.